So it is the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. In your heart, you know he's right. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. This is Liberty in Exile with your host, Yael Osofsky. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bring you liberty, not destroy it. The evil that governments do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones, so let it be with liberty in exile. Hello and welcome to the program on this, the 26th day of August, the year 2013. I am your host, Yael Osabski, broadcasting to you from the Freiheit Studio in Vienna, Austria. We're broadcasting right now on the Liberty Radio Network, LRN.FM, and the No Agenda Stream, noagendastream.com. And you can always find this show and the podcast at Liberty in Exile. Dot com. Now, this is going to be a special broadcast. We're going to be talking about my travels throughout the state of Myanmar, once known as Burma. A little bit of my, about what I did there, what I learned, and how it relates to freedom. <laughs> So it's no secret that I've uh, been away from the microphone for a good while. I've had to do some traveling, uh, went on vacation. I did some things for European Students for Liberty, an organization you all know that I am a part of. And uh, really what I learned all throughout my journeys, uh, starting from Bangkok to Burma to Indonesia to all across Europe, was really about the people and how the people are surviving. Now, for those of you who do not know much about Myanmar, the land also known as Burma, I thought I'd I'd give you a little primer. I'm going to put some information in the show notes at libertyandexile.com. But uh, let's read a little bit from the wiki page to find out a little bit about it. Uh, Burma, as it is known, or officially the Republic of the Union of Myanmar, is in Southeast Asia, and it's bordered by China, Thailand, India, Laos, and Bangladesh. So there's about 60 million people in Burma. Now, I'm going to probably go back and forth between Myanmar and Burma throughout the show. I think this is uh, just kind of of habit and sort of a preference for the people. Some of the people that you meet are very much prefer Burma, whereas many of them actually prefer Myanmar. It's still very contentious, so obviously I tried as a Westerner to stay out of the debate, so I used whatever people were comfortable with, and it seemed to be Myanmar. There is the famous Myanmar beer, the Myanmar tea, Myanmar food. If 
you travel there, then you'll notice that people call it Myanmar food, and they want you to eat it. So uh, continuing to read a little bit from the wiki page here, it is a country of over 60 million people. Uh, as I said before, it is a Buddhist country. There are not many people who are going to be stealing your stuff, especially if you're a Westerner in this nation. It is still very oppressed. It has been ruled by a military dictatorship for over 40 years. Now, before that, there was a socialist government in power, and really because of the successive tyrannies, they have not had much Western influence and certainly not Western investment. That has really only started in the last two or three years, as well as the influx of tourism, which was uh, beforehand practically banned. So I will talk a little bit more about my experiences there and everything that I learned, but I'd like to play a little bit of a clip, a little primer for anyone who is interested in In Burma or Myanmar. It's a film by the Australian documentarian John Pilger called Inside Burma, Land of Fear. It's a very good video documentary. I'll link to it in the show notes at libertyinexile.com. So we'll play a little bit of a clip and we'll come right back. This is a film about the right of a people to freedom and the power of the human spirit to resist against overwhelming odds. It's the story of Burma, once known as the Golden Land. On the surface, everything appears serene. It's a country of extraordinary beauty and gracious people. But Burma is also a secret country, isolated for the past 34 years since a brutal dictatorship seized power the assault on its people all but forgotten. To tell their story, we had to go undercover. What we found was a land of fear. carrying the posters and flags, they were sh shot uh, and then they all died immediately on the spot. Nine students were badly tortured and they were sent to prison for seven years just for singing a freedom song. Those who have already been in prison, they know what it is like to be in a Burmese prison, and they know that any day they're liable to be put back there, and yet they do not give up. The generals who crushed democracy in Burma have ruled with a regime so harsh, bloody, and uncompromising that the parallels with Indonesia and East Timor are striking. More than a million people have been forced from their homes, and according to the United Nations, untold thousands have been massacred, tortured, and subjected to a modern form of slavery. Burma, says Amnesty International, is a prison without bars. In 1988, the year before the democracy movement in China was crushed so publicly in Tiananmen Square, as many as 10,000 people were killed here by their government in a matter of days. The outside world knew little about this, the difference was the absence of television cameras. This film is being made in secret 
as the regime attempts to cover its crimes with the help of foreign investors and by declaring 1996 the year of the tourist. Now, I don't know if I am ashamed of this, but I guess I did visit in the year 2013, which for me was the year of me as a tourist. I paid the visa application fee, I had to pay around 25 euros, I had to send my passport off to Berlin. I had to do that a few weeks ahead of time, and then I finally landed in Yangon. This was back on the 18th of July. Now, from my experience at the airport, I guess that's always our, our first uh, sort of, I guess, push into a, a foreign nation. I did see one Coca-Cola advertisement, which uh, to me was very interesting. I read a lot of reports saying that Coca-Cola had only recently been introduced, and still they cannot get a lot of people to drink it because it's seen as sort of a luxurious thing, even though it's still, it's actually very cheap to drink in the streets of Myanmar. Now, upon arriving at the airport, you have the customs guards, and they're not at all very happy <laughs> with the situation. No one is smiling. They all really seem like they are soulless people. Now, I'm sure they do have families, and they all have souls, and they all have a great family life, but uh, it seems in this work, they do not seem too happy. I had my picture taken. I had to at least stand, stand there, have my, my face gawked at for a bit, my papers checked again and again, but at last I was put through and uh, accepted into the country. Now, uh, I was traveling with my girlfriend, Melanie, and we made our way out into the street where we had a car waiting for us. And I think the first thing that I was very surprised at is that the people were driving on the right side of the car. That is, like in most uh, countries that have been dominated by the British Empire, except the U.S., you have the left-hand drive cars, or where you are sitting on the right side of the vehicle and you're able to drive the car. Now, that wasn't weird, but what was weird was the fact that everybody was driving in the right lane. Now, in most countries where, again, people have left-hand drive, they drive on the left side. This makes it a lot easier. It's more practical for turning. But here in Myanmar, it seems as if they're all driving on the right. And I really, I started to ask around and I investigated a little bit further, and it turns out that Really, the reason is because of a military diktat. Apparently, the military government really wanted to sort of cut ties with the British. Uh, the British had uh, controlled Burma for, for many years as a colony until they finally gained independence in the 60s. So by doing this and by somehow switching cars and mandating that everybody drive on the right side, this somehow gave the Myanmar government at the time some kind of a legitimacy. It, it was sort of like a power play. But really, practically, it makes it very hard for cars to, to ever turn left, <laughs> to ever go into intersections. It's always a headache. We didn't really see any accidents, uh, so that, I guess, is very fortunate. But, of course, there are so many people in the streets, especially in the capital, Yangon, that uh, I really don't know how they do it. So that was uh, my first thoughts upon landing. And then once we get to the uh, very cheap hotel, uh, prices for Westerners are still uh, not really the highest. They're about 10,000 Myanmar chat uh, equals about 10 U.S. dollars. So that's sort of like a, a rough measure of how you can uh, try to translate the currency in your mind. And uh, I will say that the prices are very cheap. I'll just give you an example. I went to go look at uh, how much a head and shoulders bottle was at the the, the little drugstore on the corner, 
And for a whole bottle, normal bottle of Head and Shoulders, which uh, in Europe here is about six euros, uh, throughout the United States it's about four or five dollars. There in Myanmar, it cost one dollar and twenty nine cents. One dollar and twenty nine cents. It was just over a thousand Myanmar chat. Now that's a good deal. And that was not the only deal that I saw throughout my whole trip, but that was just within the first night. And I think that was uh, very interesting for us. We stayed at a uh, Chinese hotel owned by some uh, some Chinese folks, but uh, pretty much young Burmese uh, guys working there. They're probably a little bit younger than I was. Uh, English is terrible. I think that's one thing you have to realize in, in Burma and Myanmar when you're traveling is that the English level will be very, very poor. Uh, that does not necessarily reflect upon the intellect of the people. It's more the education and like in places like uh, North Korea, uh, you know, there is this hate against the Western governments and Western empires, and there has been some carried over hate against English, but uh, still the youth are learning and the younger people are becoming more fluent, so that that was a little bit more interesting. That was another observation, so that was our sort of first look. And uh, the next day was was more walking around, uh, was more trying to figure out what the city was all about. And I, I do incline everyone listening to this, to the Liberty in Exile podcast here on Liberty Radio Network, to go to libertyinexile.com and, and find the documentary by John Pilger. It'll give you a much, I guess, grimmer detail of what is going on in Myanmar. I was not witness to any slave labor or to any a huge abuse of children or people, but, uh, you know, again, these are things that are kept out of the eyes of Western tourists on purpose. So that is uh, something that you can definitely find in that film and something that I definitely recommend. And in the coming weeks, I'll be trying to put together some sort of documentary on Myanmar. I, I took a lot of video. I used my iPhone to, to try to get as much as possible. Of course, I couldn't really conduct any interviews, because a uh, little-known fact, you do need to apply for your visa and put down your occupation. And from everything that I read, it is pretty much strictly forbidden for any sort of journalist to try to go into Myanmar. So I just wrote down on my profession that I was a student, just hoping to avoid any troubles. I think uh, you know we're all abused by our own Western governments in some way, but uh, I think the abuse and the tyranny that happens in a lot of these uh, dictatorships and uh, certainly these these military regimes is a lot more dangerous and I just did not want to take the risk so I listed student and that's how I went however I did a lot of recording uh, recorded a lot of uh, great video so I'll be putting something together here in the coming weeks and you can find that on the YouTube page and I'll link to it on uh, my Twitter page at YaLOSS so Continuing on, I think it's important to, again, reiterate that, yes, I was a tourist, but, again, we did not spend much money. We were not in five-class hotels. We did not uh, ride on people's backs. Uh, This is really—it was all about learning. And we visited a lot of pagodas, uh, a lot of the Buddhist temples. We saw a lot of people praying. We saw very unkempt streets at some point. Uh, there are a lot of guys who are doing construction work completely barefoot. They're <laughs> creating a sidewalk, just kind of walking around in the cement. They had it all over their feet, uh, just kind of doing it like that. They had a couple of sticks, some stones, a couple of rocks, and they were making a sidewalk. They were building infrastructure. 
So that was a, a very interesting experience for me to see that, especially the guys who were building houses, kind of uh, just running up and down, carrying rocks and sticks and, and doing it all barefoot and just throwing things into a back of a truck. You know, it's so interesting to, to see it, and you sometimes wish that you could go in and kind of try to show you know, how this might work better, but then again, people are successful, and they're doing things on their own, and they're being very entrepreneurial. People are, are selling things, and if you are a Westerner, then you're definitely going to be approached and asked to buy stuff, but uh, they don't get too upset if you don't buy anything, so I, I, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal if, if you say no. Believe they're trying to sell you a couple postcards. Some might even try to sell you some fake gems. That's a sort of a, a thing that the government of Myanmar has tried to crack down on, but uh, again, this is not anything that they can really do in great measure. It is a military dictatorship, and it is a police state, and people are kept in fear for their lives, but they're not going to be able to catch every Joe Blow on the street. So thankfully, that, that is a good thing. So visiting the pagodas is something that I believe I have to talk about. As has been previously inferred, the peoples of Burma are extremely religious, deeply philosophical, and very, very much in love with the Buddha. Buddha temples everywhere, large and small. Most of the Buddha temples have one that is completely in gold, real gold. If you were to saw off the Buddha and try to sell it at a pawn shop, I'm sure you would get tens of thousands of, of dollars, uh, so millions of Myanmar chat. Uh, so, but of course, as very strident and ardent Buddhists, they're not going to go do that. So that was uh, very interesting to see. People praying all the time at the pagodas. As religious people, that is something that they find very important. And people are also very willing to share their religion with us. If we went to a pagoda and we saw people praying or, or putting cups of water on a statue, they would tell us exactly what it was, exactly what it was for. It was something to do with the, the day of the week in which you were born, and that would indicate how many cups of water you would pour onto the Buddha. Again, lots of things that Western, uh, mostly Christian countries would not understand, but this is the, the reigning sort of philosophical religion in these Southeastern Asian nations, and it was uh, really a pleasure to see this in action. It was very interesting and really puts a different perspective. And I say that really also sincerely because of the people, the Burmese people. These are very excited people. They're very interested in coming up to you and talking to you, and obviously the conversation won't be too deep or or even meaningful, but uh, they love to say hello, love to yell at you. If you're a girl, you might get stared at a great deal or whistled at, and as a guy, if there are tons of young girls, they'll probably giggle in your face. That's kind of uh, that would happen to me plenty of times. But the people are resilient. And the people sometimes are living in, in squalor conditions. You see them, they have small tents or they have a little shack when they're resting. And, you know, it makes you think that we don't really need all these mansions and huge houses and, and large apartments to house all our stuff. When these people are smiling, they're laughing, they have their family. They might not have a lot, but they have enough to survive. It's not something that I would wish on everyone, but if the people in Myanmar can survive like that and be happy even if they know all the obstacles in front of them, 
even if they know that there's a military dictatorship, even if they know that they can't try to rise up and start their own democracy, even though they know they can't start a free press and start writing and criticizing the government at will, they're still, on the whole, very happy. And family is very important in Myanmar. If you uh, are in the streets, you see a lot of people driving by on their scooters, and they almost always have young children who are at the helm, who are right there on the front handlebars. And you always see the families together, always buying things together, always at the market. Everything is a family business. I thought that was very interesting as well. Every time you go to a pagoda, a temple... Uh, we started out in the city of Yangon, where you have very, very beautiful temples. Uh, they've been, they're very well maintained. They're clean. You have people who are basically walking around, hordes of people. I would say dozens of men, normally, who are walking around with a mop or a broom and cleaning the floor. They require everyone to walk around barefoot, so no shoes allowed. And, of course, your shoes are safe. The Buddhists would never steal those. But they have these workers pushing around the broom, making sure the floor is clean and spotless so people can pray, people can take pictures, people can walk around, and they can admire their go their gods. So that was certainly one interesting aspect, and that was in the city of Yangon. Once we got to the city of Bagan, B-A-G-A-N, which is a... Less populous city, of course, a lot less tourism, but it is a temple town, very old, very sandy, and there are perhaps tens of thousands of old temples which are spread across uh, Old Bagan, New Bagan. It's just an amazing place, and there really is a lot of history there, and people are very devoted to going to the temples, and they're very devoted to their gods and living a, a good, virtuous life. So that was very interesting to see in Bagan. Now, another thing that I have to preface for the interest of those, of course, this is Liberty in Exile, and I sort of went there, as a, any government bureaucrat would say, on a fact-finding mission. And I started researching in that the places that we went to, Yangon, Bagan, and then we ended up in the city of Mandalay, these are not places that uh, you really have a huge presence of military troops or policemen. Now, in Bagan, a few times when we were on, we would rent a carriage, a horse carriage, and we'd be going through at night, and you have policemen on the road searching for foreigners, making sure that nobody was out past curfew. Uh, curfew, I believe, was around 8 uh, 8.30. The sun normally went down around 6.30, so that it was uh, they were graceful enough to give everyone at least two hours to get back, but they were out checking the roads. In Yangon, you did not see too many. Mandalay, you didn't see too many. But again, these are cities that are meant for tourists. They're catered to tourists. And all throughout the rest of the country, in the southeast and in the northwest, these are places where foreigners are actually not allowed to go. Most of the country, you are not allowed to visit as a white foreigner. As a white tourist, you cannot travel everywhere. Now, we met a, a fellow at one of the temples who was from the southeast of Myanmar, uh, Kahum region, he told me, and uh, he was a, a teacher at a, an orphanage, and he was uh, telling a story about how the government is very repressive, 
especially where he came from, because that is where all the mining minerals are. So the governments have basically enslaved people to go into the mines, take them all out, and then use that and give them to corporations who will then sell them for, for millions of dollars. So that's something that the government is, again, not only allowing nor endorsing, but actually forcibly doing. Now, this is a, an extreme example, but it is ongoing. In the film with John Pilger, you learn a little bit about the road to Mandalay, which has very, very smooth, extremely smooth, the nicest of all highway rides I've ever had. It's probably about five or six hours from Bagan, and this highway is paved to the gills. However, it was all paved and all structured and made for tourists by slave labor. And John Pilger covers that extensively in his documentary. It's something that is uh, very unfortunate. And, you know, you really don't see anyone on the road. You only have the tourist bus that takes people to and from large cities. You don't see any passenger traffic. You really don't see many people who are out enjoying a Sunday drive. And it was built by slave labor, which uh, is ongoing. And it is a sad case. And it is hopeful that with further development, with more investment, uh, that will bring more scrutiny and that will really allow some sort of sunlight into Burma. It would allow the people to get free, allow people a free press, allow them to get to experience everything that we have in Western nations that they really don't. And there are examples of this in many of the temples that we went to, huge signs everywhere warning foreigners that they should not at all trust anyone who's selling anything and does not have a government license. Now, this is not uh, particular to Myanmar. This happens in practically every Western industrial democracy nowadays, huge regulation of business. But this is one in which people who are caught selling you things may actually get in trouble if they don't have a government license. And we don't mean fines or slap on the wrist, but we mean perhaps being rounded up, perhaps getting a visit from uh, the military or the police. Again, I can't speak to seeing that personally, but I know that uh, every time I would mention anything about the government or, or anyone would mention anything offhand, people would get very, very quiet, especially people selling things. So that was definitely an experience and something that you do constantly have to live in fear of if you live in a place like Burma, unfortunately. The main difference, I guess you could say, between... The cities that we visited, starting with the capital Yangon, where the population is very high, to Bagan, where there's not as many people, but many more temples make up for that. And then with the final city, Mandalay, or as I say, Mandalay, uh, the difference all between them, I guess you have to say the amount of business, the amount of money, how people are making a living. In Bagan, people are mostly trying to cater to tourists. There are a few nice shops uh, where people are just selling things that are for locals, but in a, a place like that, it's pretty reliant upon tourists coming in from either Western nations, or actually now there are a lot of China, Chinese uh, tourists. So Chinese tourists are trying to coming in in, in droves, I guess, and that uh, has influenced a lot of Burmese to write a lot in Han Chinese or write a lot in Mandarin and attempt to bring the people in. So that was very interesting to see. 
in uh, Mandalay. This is more, again, of an industrial city. I guess you could say there's a lot of uh, education, educational institutions, a lot of more, I guess, uh, well, people are selling more in the streets, I would say, in Mandalay. This is a place where there are many more people who are, let's say, using a craft. So you have people who are uh, making metal. You have blacksmiths. You have people who are uh, trying to do sculptures. A lot of Buddha sculptures are, are being made. That was very interesting to see people just out with a chisel and a hammer making a, just a beautiful white marble sculpture of a Buddha. Now, a problem with this and with most of the business in the cities that we saw is that they still don't understand the true nature of competition of the market. If you were to wander to certain parts of Yangon, for example, or to Mandalay, you would notice that there would be different corners where that was all that was sold. So there would be an entire street where it was nothing but mirrors. You walk down a whole street where it's nothing but furniture. You walk down a street and you see that it was a nothing but metal rods. Most of the prices were pretty much exactly the same. So there was a kind of market, but information does not uh, really go through as quickly as it normally would in a more competitive environment. Now, this might be because they are not allowed to wander elsewhere. We know that rent is probably very expensive for the local Burmese. Also, you have to take into consideration government licenses and fees, which are very, very important if you're attempting to do anything important in Myanmar, in Burma, in business. So a lot of the people that we talked to were very proud of the fact that they had jumped through all the hoops and had their, their business, and they were ready and willing to make a profit and see if they could help out their family, build up savings and a life. So that that's sort of embedded into the culture. And again, it's a culture that I would never be able to penetrate myself. I was able to learn the numbers and uh, some you know, basic speech, enough to get you by uh, saying hello, goodbye, how are you, uh, saying my age, things of that sort. Um, the numbers, the way, that, that also came in very handy. And I also learned the symbols for the numbers, which was very fun to try to practice and, and show some of the kids that I had learned. And I was uh, with them. I was trying to learn their language, much like a lot of them were very interested in learning ours. Uh, there was uh, one specific instance where Melanie was uh, speaking with one young girl. She was probably, I would say, 24. I think that's what she said her age was. And she was at a temple, and she was waiting with, I guess, her siblings trying to sell things. And she just got to talking, and she was able to speak French. Uh, she knew a little bit of German. Her English was uh, pretty good for someone who had never formally really went to school in the last couple of years. And and we were very impressed, and I was able to try to exchange my knowledge of, of Burmese letters and symbols, uh, and she was able to, to get more practice of German and French and English. So that was very eye-opening for us, and we gave information, and I, I did the, the, the white touristy thing and, and gave some extra money because she showed us around the temple, and of course that made her very happy and made her siblings very jealous so that was a very, very cool experience, and it, it was something very interesting. It's sort of a, a meeting of the civilizations. Yes, there might be a, a huge oppressive government uh, that really keeps people like this and, and smart, pretty girls who 
could very much be successful and perhaps you know, go to school, become educated, start a business, uh, move up in some company. But the existence of, of that repressive regime kind of keeps it down. But it was very, very amazing to see how she was staying resilient, how she was still very, 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 very smart, very keen, and uh, hopefully in the future she'll find her way to, to find happiness and be successful. So that's just one of the tales from the temples in Bagan. That's where that uh, that temple was. Not as many temples in Mandalay. Uh, Mandalay is more of a city where you have a little bit more diversity. In fact, uh, there's a growing Muslim population which has uh, really come to, I guess, be a burden in the neighborhood. There's been a lot of violence between the Buddhists and the Muslims, which you would not expect from the Buddhists, but there have been a few radical monks. Uh, that's another thing. The monks are everywhere in the streets of Yangon, Mandalay, Bagan, uh, always doing their daily collection of money from uh, houses, from businesses, and all over. But in Mandalay especially, just uh, I think a few days before we arrived, there had been a, a bomb attack that a lot of people blamed on uh, the Muslim uh, local Muslim group that was... Uh, trying to attack uh, someone who is a Buddhist, who was a priest, a monk, who pretty much hated against Muslims. So that was uh, kind of a scary thing in the beginning, but uh, again, we did not have any problems. We did see a few mosques, which was uh, an interesting change. Uh, obviously, this is a problem that has been spurning all throughout Central and, and Eastern Asia, so it's not unique at all to Burma, to Myanmar, but it is continuing on there, and you know, hopefully it will never escalate into a more larger civil war situation, but it seems as if the iron boot of the government right now has sort of avoided that. But you never know what people are going to do when they're pushed into a corner. Isn't that always true? So as far as the culture is concerned, that was something that was very interesting to us and also to other Western tourists that we met along the way. You had uh, the longi is what the men wear. It is uh, basically a long, I guess you could say, kilt or skirt uh, that is that is worn by practically every man in the entire country. And uh, if they have a wallet or they have keys, they normally just kind of tuck it into their their waistband and uh, you know try to carry on as as best they can. But that's sort of the standard dress. Everyone is always wearing flip flops. Uh, as far as television music is concerned, we have, were, <laughs> I guess, very fortunate to watch a lot of Burmese music videos, and you heard a clip beforehand uh, in this show. <laughs> Basically what a standard Burmese song is, it's a, a guy crying after a girl, a girl leaning up against a wall, and you have a very sappy music going on and on. I'm sure there's more exciting stuff that's uh, happening, but that I wasn't really exposed to that. We did uh, hear a lot of American music that was all just, uh, I guess, rewritten to be spoken in Burmese, and they had their own uh, song. So I heard the Red Hot Chili Peppers songs in Burmese. I heard some Brian Adams in Burmese. It's all very interesting in a way. It's uh, how the culture has sort of been construed and reinterpreted in a way. I mean, I don't know what the lyrics are saying in these songs. Maybe they're similar. Maybe they're com something completely different. I think that's very fascinating. 
as far as uh, rights of women are concerned, uh, women seem very free to, to walk around. Uh, they're able to congregate. It's not really a big deal. They don't wear headscarves or anything, so that's not uh, anything to be worried about if you are if you are traveling there. Another interesting thing that you notice is that a lot of women are very active in the business. Most of the time, the businesses are owned by the women, are controlled by the women. They're normally the ones who interact with the customers, really no matter what the industry that I saw. So that was uh, something very interesting. Perhaps there is a, a growing feminist movement there. There have actually been a few good articles at Foreign Policy just about this. And uh, Anyan Suchi, she is uh, the was the democratically elected leader who never actually got power. Uh, she's uh, hinted on this a lot as well. So that'd be something to, I guess, you could investigate or research a little bit more on if you would like. Other things that uh, you could see is that, as I said before, the Myanmar beer and Myanmar tea. Now, because uh, the system of markets in Myanmar is still very young, a lot of things are state-owned, and that includes the choice of beer. You're able to get a Myanmar beer normally for about 1,800 chat, so about $1.80. You got about a liter bottle, but uh, these... You know, more more people probably were drinking tea than ever were drinking beer. There's not really a big uh, drinking culture in Myanmar, unless, of course, you're connected to the party or you're a military dictator somehow in the ruling elite. And then you go to the American-style American hotels and probably drink the night away. But we didn't really see anyone in the smaller towns uh, chugging along on too much Myanmar beer. I probably drank more than more than anyone else in the city. So that that says uh, enough, I believe. The monks, as I said before, are very important for the culture. There was one incident. Uh, we were staying at this place called the E.T. Hotel in Mandalay, and uh, a monk comes to the door, and it's just the young kids who are manning the desk at the hotel. And normally the monk comes, and he looks for some kind of offering. If they don't have any money, they'll give them a little bit of food. Uh, they'll give them just a prize or anything, like a small gift. But for some reason, the kids just uh, were annoyed with this monk and just kind of kicked him out, told him to leave, and gave him nothing. So I don't know if this is a, a showing a sign of uh, the, that the youth are not really willing to live up to the same religious institutions as their parents, or maybe this was just a, a bunch of dicks as kids who were <laughs> maltreating a monk who are supposed to be very highly respected. There's a big, uh, there was a big monk protest that happened a few years ago, the silent monk protest, as they called it. The monks gathered, and they had their red robes and just kind of walked around the streets of Yangon trying to show their opposition to the government and their opposition to the oppressive regime. So that was uh, something that I learned about and I did hear about from a few dissident voices within Burma, some of the people we talked to. So that's always interesting to get that insider perspective. Um, other... Other things that you sort of see throughout, uh, especially uh, Yangon, is uh, a lot of people selling the fruit. If you've been to basically any southeastern nation, you have a lot of people selling fruit right there on the street. They cut it up hours beforehand, so it gets kind of gross. But uh, you know, then again, you're there to, to enjoy and eat food, and we would buy some on the street. I bought myself an egg roll one time and made the girl at the stall very excited. Uh, one thing that I did try, as I try to do in almost every country I go to now, is I tried the local drug. 
Now, for a lot of people who are listening to this, and, you know, it's not a surprise that they're hearing me talk about the war on drugs or drugs in general, but this was actually the local drug, and that is the beetle nut. I believe they have the same in India and some other Southeastern Asian nations, uh, nations, but the idea of the beetle nut is that you have the nut from the tree, it's wrapped in a certain type of leaves, glued together with a lime paste, and then chewed. It takes about probably an hour to chew the whole thing down, and uh, from chewing it, there's a red juice that is extracted, and it's a very addictive red juice that sort of gets you a little little high. Now, I, I enjoyed one that was uh, given to me by a vendor. I guess they wanted to see the white guy try it, so I bit down on the beetle nut, and at first I didn't feel anything at all, but then all of a sudden my head started spinning. I, I was... Uh, just looking around, I was concentrating on random objects, my head was sort of in the clouds, and this lasted all of about five minutes, and, uh, you know, from that time, my mouth started really building up with all this saliva, and it's just red spit. Anywhere you go in Myanmar, and I believe in India as well, there's just huge mounds of red spit from people doing the betel nut, so I actually washed my mouth out as quickly as possible to get rid of it, because uh, it was too strong for me, I think. But another point about that is that the betel nut and the juice that uh, comes from it is actually highly cancerous. So you actually see people in the streets of Viengan, Mandalay, Bagan, who are doing the betel nut, and their teeth are already starting to rot. Now, they probably have been doing it for a few years, but this goes to show that you know, this is uh, their own vice, their own bad habit. You know, in the Western nations, we have cigarettes and alcohol, so everyone's allowed to have their own sin drugs and and do as they wish. But, you know, this is something that is very highly cancerous. I read a lot of articles, and, and people do loosely, usually get start getting lumps in their mouth and, and all kinds of terrible things. So, thankfully, I only tried it once. It wasn't that big of a deal, but that's the way it goes. You know, I guess overall, it was a very interesting experience. It was very amazing. There is a hope for democracy. There is a hope for people who are trying to control their own destiny, who are questioning the government, who want their individual liberty, who want to have a free market and be able to trade with people openly and not have to worry about the government coming in and punishing anyone or having the government's friends come in and steal all their business. So I would say that on the whole, Myanmar is a place that is on the up and up. Yes, there is propaganda on the television screens. Yes, the military controls a lot of the land and foreigners aren't allowed to go there. Yet the people are the source of inspiration here. I cannot reiterate that enough. In my interactions and in every single interaction, the people actually just personify exactly how a resilient people can be. I was very impressed by that. And I'll be following Burma, Myanmar in the news as best I can. I'll be leading my support, lending my support in any way I can as well. And I encourage all of you to do your own research on Myanmar, Burma. Perhaps it's not the place for you to visit. There are a lot of ways to not send your money to government-owned institutions or government-owned businesses and sort of do things and help the locals, which they do very much appreciate. So you can just look into that. You can also, uh, if you're interested and want to learn a bit more, you can send me an email, yaelyael at live.ca. I'd be very willing to answer any questions if you're interested in going or 
generally interested or if you're from the uh, Burmese military and would like to lock me up and find out my address, just send me an email and, uh, you know, I answer you as, as quickly as I can. So it's going to be a very interesting, uh, I guess, ne next few weeks as I transition back to Western European life. But I did have an amazing time. Uh, this is the Road to Burma, the Road to Myanmar podcast. This is Liberty in Exile on the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda Stream. These travel shows are fun. I will see if I can put together that documentary as pr as promised. It'll be uh, probably the next focus of my work here in the next few weeks, and uh, that will be very interesting for listeners and viewers alike. And uh, the next episode will be Indonesia, where I learned to do some surfing. I learned to interact a little bit more with the locals as well, and all about what is going on in the booming place of Bali, Indonesia. So that will be next week. As for now, I am your host, Yael Osavsky. Thank you for listening to this show. Go to libertyinexile.com for the show notes. Uh, some of the documentary I talked uh, I talked about, uh, some of the articles, the wiki pages, and everything I can link to. It has been a pleasure. I hope uh, you all have a great time. Au revoir. A bon chance. Atos. Visit libertynexile.com.